Hey y'all, how we doing? Shout out to Bear Nation for tuning in for another episode of The Bear Necessities of Entrepreneurship, a podcast for the entrepreneur-minded, created by entrepreneurs, discussing the real stories that give you the tools to overcome challenges and stay true to your real self. As always, I want to give a shout out to our partners over at Finn. Finn is a social good platform that creates employee engagement and builds culture. We've teamed up with Finn to give back to the communities that we serve. For every episode, we will be donating $10 to the cause of choosing by our guest in the Finn platform. Enjoy today's episode. Hey, everybody. We are back once again for another episode of the Bare Necessities of Entrepreneurship podcast. And today is going to be an interesting one. I'm excited to bring on our guest uh, to talk about a different side of entrepreneurship, the investor side. So my guest today is... A friend of mine uh, who we met randomly through our connections in New York, happened to both be from the Midwest, uh, which we love to talk about our experience of Midwest to New York. Abby Lyle is the vice president at Big Idea Ventures, where she invests in early stage companies in food and food technology. She was also previously the second employee at Quake Capital, uh, which was an industry agnostic VC and accelerator. And she has her degree from NYU's Stern School of Business. So, Abby, thank you for being a part of Bear Nation today. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. It's great to be here. Absolutely. And I have to tell the listeners, you know, there is a event that we went to called Web Summit in 2019. Oh, my God. That World feels like it was 10 years ago. <laughs> it feels like it, right? Before the world shut down and we were in Lisbon. I was a totally different person then. Yeah, <laughs> I think we all were a totally different person. And so we all went down. So I went for the whole week. Uh, a lot of us went down for a uh, web summit. We spent the whole week there. Abby had another event. She like, flew in late, came in for like two days, lack of sleep. But we went out at this little bar called Lisboa Vadia, where we ended up singing karaoke and playing music till about yes. 4 a.m. And I never so fun. will never forget that night. It was so fun. I was so drunk that night. I almost missed my plane flight. I somehow I rolled I rolled out of bed like I didn't set an alarm. Somehow miraculously woke up just in time to make barely make it to the airport. So hungover, um, oh. but it was totally worth it. We had such we had such a blast. We did, and they had this wine that was grown from a local farmer um, just outside the city. In fact, uh, Francis and the new, uh, the Weave, formerly Numa Squad, went back, and I connected them to Teresa because I still stay in touch with that bar. They still talk about us in that night uh, from all the years <laughs> ago. Great. So We're the life of the party. They had the wine, and then they also had that liqueur. That local liqueur, yeah. which was so good. It was, yeah. Yeah. we. Uh, so the next morning, I went to the airport. I made it on time. I bought two bottles of wine to take home. And I fell asleep waiting for the plane to board. And then they woke me up like, hey, you got to board the plane. And I left the wine underneath my seat at the Lisbon airport. Two bottles of amazing wine that I forgot in the airport. Oh, no. Uh, That's a loss. That's a tragedy. It, it was a tragedy. But, you know, such is life. And so... I bring that story up to kind of kick things off because, um, you know, Abby and I met through our ecosystem uh, and, and, you know, I really would love for you to give us a quick, quick background um, on you and how you got into the world of VC and why, and this is kind of a long side of it, but like why is investing in technology 
specifically food tech, so interesting to you? Yes. Um, happy to talk a little more about my background and my journey. Um, as Rob mentioned, I'm, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Ohio originally. I moved to New York in 2014 to um, go to NYU's business school. Um, I studied finance and computer science there. I started a company while I was there. Um, that was something that I sort of randomly fell into doing. Um, you know, I, I, when I first started off at Stern, um, you know, th there was a lot of pressure to go towards investment banking or, you know, a traditional finance route. That's what most people were doing. Um, and that just wasn't really a cultural fit for me. Um, I, I didn't really, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a really big company person. I don't like hierarchy. I don't like being told what to do. Um, I'm much more of a, you know, make my own rules and march to the beat yeah. of my own drum type of person. So um, sort of fell into starting starting a company uh, with a friend from college. It was a, in the education technology space. We failed miserably at it. I was a horrible CEO. We, we made every mistake in the book. Um, but it was such a valuable learning experience. I, I really got, had two years to kind of, make all of the mistakes myself and get that hands-on experience starting a company yeah. um, within the sort of um, within the sort of practice field of life that is a university setting um, and with you know grant money and, and things like that from the university which was which was fantastic so through that <laughs> experience of starting my company I got really baked into um, the entrepreneurship ecosystem at NYU which was really fantastic um, met a lot of great people through that. And um, one of the people that I met through that ecosystem, um, Brandon Meyer, um, he he's a, was a friend of mine. Um, he was starting a, a VC fund called Quake Capital with a few other folks. So he asked me if I wanted to come on board as an early employee. Um, I joined that firm um, while I was still in college, actually, in, in 2016, um, and helped build out their accelerator program from scratch. Um, I merged into a full-time role after I graduated, ran five accelerator programs for them, um, worked with 75 companies across a wide variety of industries, um, really got that. Not only the, the VC and the investment experience, but also the really hands-on experience of working with the companies yeah. through the accelerator yeah. ecosystem. Um, and then in 2019, I um, left that job and, and went to uh, join Big Idea Ventures. Um, I really wanted to do something more mission-driven. I'm super passionate mm -hmm. about um, fighting global climate change and human health and animal welfare. Um, and Big Idea Ventures uh, was a, a brand new company at the time. Again, I was one of the first employees. Um, there's, a, there's a bit of a recurring pattern here. Um, <laughs> and they, they were launching a fund focused on um, plant-based alternatives, plant-based and cell-based alternatives to meat, dairy, and seafood mm -hmm. products. So it seemed like a good way for me to merge the things that I'm passionate about, you know, in, in my personal life with, um, you know, what, uh, what, what I was doing professionally. So, um, I joined that team at BIV as a, as a, as one of the first employees, again, built an accelerator program from scratch, worked with a lot of fantastic companies in, in alternative protein. And then, um, for the last year and a half or so, um, I've been on BIV's special projects team, um, which is sort of like the uh, the internal innovation arm of our company. Uh, we we launch yeah. new funds and initiatives um, focused on growing the firm. Um, I'm building a, a later stage fund focused on food technology, um, a fund focused on um, commercializing university IP in food and food technology. Um, and then we're also building a food co-manufacturing plant. So um, lots of really fun stuff going on. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of different projects. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting and awesome to hear Right, you went to NYU Stern that kind of forced you into this box of like finance and investment banking. And instead, you went and became an entrepreneur and failed at it. 
right? Which you talked about, which I think is amazing because we forget that we can't be perfect. And it was in those failures that allowed you to go and build an accelerator program that, you know, Quake, for those that don't know Quake, um, it's a pretty good, pretty good program. And they've had some amazing companies that have gone and do amazing things based off that. It's the same with BIV, right? And then taking all that to also be an investor, right? Invest in companies, building funds to invest in, in, in amazing technology. You know, who better than somebody who's gone about the grant process, who's gone about being a founder, who's created programs from founders, learned from other mentors. Like, it takes experience to do these things. And so I love that you kind of bring all that and, and utilize that all into a passion, which for many people, it's hard to figure out passion meeting the job life and, and what does that look like? And you've, you know, over time been able to, to find out those things. So when you think about, you know, investing, right? And we look at how we invest in companies. And I get asked this all the time as a coach at 12 different accelerators, what do they look for? We always talk about, right? Like scalability, the founding team and traction, right? And a lot of times they don't. So what do you look for? What are some of those key indicators when you're evaluating companies that just stand out to you that you think people should be paying attention to outside of like, obviously traction? Sure. So I I think this is a really important thing to keep in mind. And I think um, the media really does both the VC space as well as the founders, as well as the founder space, a a massive disservice by by the way they talk about venture capital and venture capital fundraising. Mm -hmm. Because venture capital fundraising, venture capital investing is this super, super, super high risk, very niche investment strategy that is really only appropriate for a very small subset of companies. And those are the, those are the companies that want to grow really, really quickly, prioritize growth above all else, prioritize growth above profit, prioritize growth above, you know, you can do it in a mission driven fashion, but you're, you're, you're really putting growth first. Um, and so if that isn't your priority as a founder and as a company, you shouldn't take VC money and that's totally fine. That is a totally valid and totally fine way to do it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And there's lots of other great ways to fund a business outside of VC capital that that, that you can look at that don't get talked about and don't get highlighted and don't get spotlighted in the media because the media just wants to talk about, you know, so-and-so raised a hundred million dollars at a $6 million valuation or whatever. And that that's, that's really what entrepreneurs are, are held for and seen as successful for instead of, you know, building a business that actually generates a lot of money. Um, so that's, that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Like when we're thinking about investments, especially for early stage VCs and the earlier stage, your fund mandate is the more true this is the vast majority of the companies are going to fail. It's such a risky investment strategy. We assume that 80 to 90% of our companies are probably either going to fail or they're going to, you know, have a small exit or we'll sort of, we'll get our money back. We won't really get that much of a return. And then the rest, the remaining, you know, 10 to 20%, they're going to need to return our entire fund. And they're going to need to produce spectacular returns. Because for our limited partners, they're taking on a ton of risk of this very, very, very risky niche investment strategy. So if we don't have spectacular returns, they're going to go put their money into, you know, the S&P 500 or something that's, you know, a lot more secure. So that's the most important thing to keep in mind. You need to be the kind of business that has the potential to be a multi-billion dollar company. 
Are you going to necessarily succeed at that? Not necessarily. I mean, we do our best to pick winners. No one's perfect. We're going to be right sometimes. We're going to be wrong sometimes. Um, But you need to have that multi-billion dollar business potential. You need to be committed to that. And you need to come into the pitch selling that story. Because Mm -hmm. if you're not doing that, then you're not going to make sense for the VC model. Because you, you don't have that potential to return the entire fund and produce those spectacular returns that we need. So that's the number one thing. I mean, there's other things we look for. Team is super important, especially at the early stages, Um, who the founders are, what their background looks like. Do we like them? Do we trust them? Do we want to work with them? I mean, this is a seven to 10 year marriage at the end of the day that we're entering into with our founders. So if this isn't someone we trust and we think we can have a good relationship with, that's not somebody that we're gonna trust with our capital. Yeah, and I love that. I mean, it is like a marriage, right? And this relationship takes time. And you know, the VC model is very interesting for a, many, for a number of reasons. But I, I like what you said here, and kind of the strategy behind it. And I think the big things for any entrepreneur out there listening that's like hearing this needs to think about. And I tell entrepreneurs all the time, they need to look in the mirror. Not every entrepreneur, not every business I come across is a multi-billion dollar business. And that's okay. You can have a multi-million dollar business and go get funding and do all these amazing things. That's just going to come from a different place. That may not be the VC route for you. But I think so many founders are like, oh, here's our Tam, Sam, and Sam. And it's going to be amazing. And we're going to have five million in the first four years. We're going to be multi-billion by this time. And it's like, hmm pump the brakes like there needs to be some hard look in the mirror to understand what that looks like and so i like how you brought up the team and you can kind of tell from the founding team and their background their experience what they're trying to build and their vision that you can kind of tell like where does that fall into a billion or million right um so i I really appreciate you sharing that and i think people don't understand that the vc world is very can be done mission driven and be done in a great way but you need to understand why you're stepping into that. And you have to have the right mentality as a founder and as a company to walk into that. Otherwise, there's all kinds of other investment models to scale and grow quickly. And that's why I actually built this podcast around the bare necessities of entrepreneurship was all these other podcasts and all the other continents like you hear about the one major challenge, the one shining moment, and they get VC funding and they scale quickly. It's Uber, it's Airbnb, and it's like that's, that's one out of a million, sure. right? Statistically, so what do we? What can companies be learning, doing, and thinking? Right, we need to talk um, about, about failures more. I, I really think we need to talk about failures more as an industry mm-hmm. because you see the big successes and the big wins be talked about. You see the big exit talked about. You see the big fundraise talked about. A big fundraise, by the way, is not necessarily a big business win. There are so many companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital and have never built a sustainable, profitable business. And we've seen a lot of those very high profile failures lately. Um, You know, some of them are fraudulent, like we're seeing Elizabeth Holmes in court now. And some of them are just, Mm -hmm. you know, lackluster, like, you know, WeWork, for example, you know, a a business that really didn't have the margins and the unit economics at the end of the day to justify the valuation and the hype that they had. And and I think that Again, like having a you know multi-million dollar fundraise be splashed all over the headlines and having that being the benchmark that founders are going for, that's not conducive to an environment that's producing um, really impactful and profitable businesses. Yeah. I love that. We need to talk about a failures more. And 
you know, what people don't realize too, a lot of the general public, um, I don't think understands, even some of the founders don't even understand this, is that just because a company gets a substantial raise doesn't mean they're like that money goes into the bank. A lot of times it's paying off debt and other investments and all these other things. And so like sometimes you see a big raise and you're like, they have all this money to scale and do this thing. It's like, actually, that might not be the case. They might not have near as much as you think to do what they need to do because there's all these backend things and people don't actually realize realize that. It's a very interesting game that you have to understand of the inner workings of why you go from series A to series B to series C to series D, right? One of the things I've always had a question on, and maybe you can shed some light, is I talk to so many founders that don't realize that in order to even go series A, you need to have a million dollars in ARR. What are, like, why do companies go series A to B to C to D? Like, what does that strategy look like? And how does that fit into what you do looking at early stage investment versus late stage investment um, in the work that you're doing? So it's heavily, it's super heavily industry dependent. So um, for for the companies we look at, I'm in a weird space because we do a lot of, you know, alternative protein, future food tech. and, And the companies that I look at are kind of split into two categories mostly. You've got plant-based CPG, so like food product innovation, consumer products companies. Um, Generally, you know, you want to see recurring revenue for those companies. You you know, you want to see revenue that's growing over time and, and, you know, recurring month over month and growth, you know, new doors, you know, new retail stores you're entering or new food service businesses you're entering because you're selling a product. This is a a nuts and bolts business. It's making Mm -hmm. something and it's selling it. Then we also look at a lot of food technology companies and those business models are totally different, especially, you know, we, we do a lot of investments on the cell based side and the microbial fermentation side, like companies that are doing, you know, cultivated meat in the lab. Mm -hmm. Um, Those companies aren't going to have any revenue until for the most part until some of the more realistic, some companies are saying 2023. I'm, I think, you know, even for the, best companies and the most realistic companies, you know, I think 2024 or 2025 for you really, really seeing truly cell-based products on the market, um, microbial fermentation, there's some, but at the, at the end of the day, those are technology companies. So you're investing yeah. in the intellectual property and you're inv- and you see this in healthcare, biotech, yeah. pharmaceuticals as well. You see, you know, pharmaceutical companies in the public markets with, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in enterprise value that have never made a dime because yeah. they're still going through clinical trials and they're getting regulatory yep. approval and you're really investing in the IP and in, in the technology. So I think it heavily depends on the sector that you're looking at. Um, I think, you know, for consumer products, um, you're generally seeing, you know, for a series A, you really need to be kind of a revenue generating company. Usually, um, generally we're seeing valuations at, you know, six to eight times, you know, eight to 10 times in this crazy environment revenue. Yeah. Um, while for some of the more technology focused companies, um, you know, the, 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 the valuations and the size of the round and the series of the round can be a lot more fungible and a lot harder to pin down because it's, it's really the technology that you're investing in and the value of that intellectual property. I love that. I mean, and it's it surprises me still how many people I talk to that don't truly understand like the levels, and they just see these things in the news, and it makes them not. It makes them think, "Oh, that's a really great company." It's like, well, but why is it a great company, or is that not a good thing that this company is still going for another round 
15 years later, <laughs> right? Um, and I think that's really important. In fact, one of the things, a future book idea I have is, is, mm-hmm. is talking about the startup cool effect. And when does a, when does a company stop being a startup, right? When does it really become a scale up? And we have so many coaches and industry leaders who are giving startup advice that is actually scale up advice. And so startup founders are trying to do it and they're spending all their money doing something that's way too, like they're not ready for. And anyways, like re, re kind of addressing what a startup to a scale up is in those different stages really? of life. That is so that, that is so funny you, that you bring that up. I, I caught up with um, an old college friend last weekend and she had just started a job at DoorDash. And I, the first words out of my mouth were, oh, that's so great. You know, how are you liking the startup life? And I'm like, wait. They're, they're, DoorDash is a public company now. Like that's not the startup. Like you know, we've got all of these companies that we're used to thinking of as the unicorn success yeah. stories or the startup stories, and they're public or they're super, super, super late stage private companies. Um, they raise hundreds of million dollars in funding. They're more you know private equity. You know, they're going for a, a public offering or they're they're more of a yeah. you know, doing private equity style rounds. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge shift from, you know, when I first started in this industry five years ago to now thinking of the companies that were the hot startups at the time now becoming like the dinosaurs in a sense. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to think. And, you know, also when companies call themselves like a 10 year startup, cause they're trying to attract talent. I think from a company standpoint, they need to also like, Hey, we're a public company. We're doing these things. We've hit these milestones. We have a startup vibe, but we're really a corporation. We have a million, a thousand employees. Like you have to, I think the employer brand side of things also needs to flip that mentality too. It's crazy because um, I think the same thing. I'm like, oh, wait a second, that's no longer a startup. But people are still talking about that as a startup story. And like, oh, the startup Airbnb. It's like, no, Airbnb has been, it's not a startup anymore. Yeah. It's way past yeah. the time. Um, so, anyways, that's a, that's a future Rob book idea. Uh, that I love it. <laughs> that love it. kind of chaps me a little bit the wrong way when I hear people give advice to the wrong spaces. Um, I kind of want to spend a few minutes because I know we're getting to the tail end of this, um, but I really want to talk about the future of food tech. And you know, you talked about your passion um, and why this is so important. So let's talk about it. as we look into 2022. We know that you know plant-based alternatives in the food tech industry is continuing to change, evolve, and grow. So tell me a little bit, you know, what do you see some of the things that people should be paying attention to next year? Some of the things you're passionate about in this space that we should be kind of like, hey, this is coming. This is something we should be looking forward to to getting involved in or paying attention to as we turn the corner in, into 2022. Oh, wow. I'm so passionate about this. I can talk about this for hours. Um, <laughs> so uh, the, the, the plant-based space is interesting because I, I started in the space in 2019 and I, I've been in it for, you know, a little over two years now. And it, it is worlds different today than it was. The, the amount of maturity, you know, we were one of the first funds that was really taking yeah. plant-based seriously in early 2019. And it was this very revolutionary cutting edge thing. And now it is, it has become so crowded. There are so many great companies, great brands, great technologies in the space. Um, you know, we've invested in, you know, over 65 companies at this point, and we're not, the, we're not nearly close, nowhere near close to being one of the few funds in the space anymore. You know, even yeah. done deals with NEA, um, you know, Coastal Ventures is getting in the space. Some of these big generalist funds um, are, are yeah. you know, really coming in and, and um, 
really, really trying to capitalize on that growth. So it's, it's really matured an incredible amount for, for the last two years. I think um, we're starting to see, you know, there's been a huge influx of investment into, um, into brands and technologies, and there has not been nearly enough investment in infrastructure, in my opinion. And I think that's something that we're going to start to need to see more of it, at least as far as plant-based plant -based goes. Um, we're building a food manufacturing plant for that reason. Um, that's something that consistently both the startups in our portfolio, as well as yeah. the large food corporates. A lot of our LPs are food corporations. We work with a lot of uh, large food corporations and universally from big to small, all of these companies are struggling with production capacity. Um, they, they, you know, they, the infrastructure hasn't kept pace with the innovation. Um, and, and I think that's a big, um, something that we're going to start to see capital really flood into that space and start to catch up there. Um, outside of plant-based, you know, some other trends that I think are really important to watch. I think uh, plastic waste is huge. That's really something that's mm -hmm. weighing on consumers' minds heavily and, and, and yeah. large corporations are really starting to pay attention to. Um, and then I'm a huge fan of regenerative agriculture. Um, I think that's something that is really mission critical to um, helping helping us combat global climate change as it relates to the food space. Um, I think there's a lot to be mm -hmm. said for, you know, it, it, it's one thing to say, yes, you know, animal agriculture is bad, at least in the sense of, you know, factory farming and the way that we've been doing it. You, you, you get a lot of there's a lot of very passionate vegans in my space. Right. And a lot of them will, <laughs> will go on a podcast like this and they'll be like, animal agriculture sucks and we need to end it. Um, and my views on the whole thing are, I think factory farming sucks and we need to end it. And I also think monocropping sucks and we need to mm -hmm. end it. Um, or at least we need to rethink it and redo it yeah. in a way that's regenerative and brings nutrients back to the land and brings native plant and animal species back to the land that they're from. And we need to live a lot more in concert and in union with the land. Um, yeah. and, and that's something that I think as a food system, we've really gotten away from with factory farming, yeah. both on the plant and animal side. So I, I think, yeah. you know, whole ecosystems and thinking about our place in the ecosystem as a consumer is really important. And you, you don't, you don't get that just by going vegan if you're eating corn and soy products <laughs> because yeah. the, the amount of deforestation and land use and water use and nutrient depletion and everything that's involved with growing those crops is not that much better for the environment than, you know, what's being accomplished yeah. with conventional animal ag. So that's a long rant, but I think regenerative agriculture is something that I care yeah. a lot about. Um, and, and I think it's something that if you care about the future of food, you, you really should be focusing on. Yeah, well, I think that's important too for for people to listen. Like, whatever your views are on meat eating versus not, is things need to change, right? And and as we grow and move forward with technology and advancements, like we need to rethink how we do things, right? Like, think about how fast technology changes, but we don't change all the other things we're doing in the world. Like, we need to speed up and and really align everything together. And I think everyone who listens to this podcast. Wherever you, wherever you sit with it, you need to understand and listen and like learn, educate. Like there's so much that needs to happen for the future of all of us, our world, our, our food, the way we do things, the way we manufacture, the way we build out stuff. And we have to be the change we want to see and be talking about this. So I love it. That's why I wanted to give you that space and place to talk about it a little bit because it's, it's a space that I don't, I haven't done a whole lot of research into, but been learning more into it about 
where those impacts are are made. You know, growing up in the Midwest, we you know, you and I both know plenty of people with farms and sure. how that's affected their lives and how their farm has either grown or not grown in the in the year. So I wanted to give some space and place. And I know we're out of time, but I want to ask you one or two final questions that I always like to end um, each one of these these episodes are. And the first one is, what do you think is your superpower? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I get this question a lot. Um, and I, 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 the best answer I've come up with so far is brutal honesty. Um, yeah. It is a superpower <laughs> and it is also a fatal flaw. At the same time, mm-hmm. I think every superpower is a fatal flaw in a sense. You know, you've got yeah. um, you've got the the part of it that's good. Anything that's powerful, you know, you've got a good side to it and a bad side to it. So, you know, I'm brutally honest. I always say what I think. If it's in my brain, it's coming out my mouth. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, um, and, um, that has gotten me a lot of really great success and, and you know, helped me make a lot of great connections and, and, and you know, get a lot of great things in my life. But it's also gotten me in a lot of hot water. Yeah. Well, I think I agree with you. I mean, everyone who's anyone, when they talk about their superpower, there's always, there's, it always works for the better. And the reason why it's a superpower is it always usually works more for the good, but there's always, there's always something to it. And I think what I love about that answer, it being a fatal flaw is that if you don't realize the negative side or the other side of it, how can you have an opinion or how can you know it's something that's good if you don't understand the negative, right? You know, going back to everything we've talked about today, VC stuff, the the plant based stuff, like we talked about it. There's a good and a bad side. If you don't understand that, good side of VC and the bad side, good side of you know manufacturing a bad side, and we make those comparisons, you'll never learn and grow. So that's why I love that you fa- you know that about yourself, and that's self awareness is a huge thing that many people don't have. Um, what is a book or resource? Or a show that you would recommend? What What's that kind of all-time thing that people should be adding to their list of content? Um, my favorite book to recommend uh, is the book called The Four Agreements. Um, okay. It's the best life book I've ever read. It's super, super applicable to business as well. It's really short. It, you could read it in an hour or two. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, really, really simple lessons for um, mm-hmm. how to live your life as a good person. And um, I, I, I think a lot of it... I think, uh, you know, we live in a world that is so full of noise and there's so many blogs and there's so many podcasts and everyone's got a Twitter and everyone's got a LinkedIn and everyone's got an opinion on everything and everyone's trying Mm -hmm. to stay relevant. And I think, you know, this, this book is just such a great, simple back to basics, first principles book, like, Hey, these are four really easy, simple, critical things to keep in mind to be a good person, lay a good foundation for ethics, morals, how to treat people. Um, and, and that's something that I think um, we need we need more of in our, in our, our society to, to help us wade through a, a lot of the noise that's out there. I love it. You know what I need to do, I've just, as you were talking about that, I've talked about how I add all these books to my list. It's a very selfish question, but it's also a value to the listeners. But I should just create a guide. Like every book or show recommended on the Barenet, the podcast, yeah, and put yeah, it on my website. It. So <laughs> I just thought of that as you're talking. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to put that on there. Awesome. So last question, you know, having been an entrepreneur and going through it yourself and working with entrepreneurs, what advice would you give to, you know, a Gen Z, a millennial, or anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur right now that they should be taking away? Yes. Um, Everybody's a person. 
everybody's a human being. Um, this seems like it would be really obvious, but it's the thing that I see people lose touch with the most with fundraising and anytime money comes into play. Um, you know, you are a human being as an entrepreneur, you're a human being, you're going to make mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes. It's a natural part of the process and your investor and the person that you're pitching is also a human being and raising money and the process of raising money is all about relationships. Investors want to invest in people that they know that they trust and that they like and that they want to work with and that they think they can have a really good professional relationship with back to the seven to 10 year long marriage, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's all about your relationship with the person. And so yeah. having a really strong network and a bunch of great relationships. And by that, I don't mean you go to a networking event and you hand out a bunch of business cards. I mean, you get to know people as people and you build real mm -hmm. relationships and you get to know people for who they are. And then, you know, you do business with them when you know you can trust them and you know you can really get to know them. And I think that's, we've gotten to a point where a lot of people approach fundraising in particular in this very transactional fashion. And they think, oh, yeah. they look at investors as vehicles to capital and not as business partners. When at the yeah. end of the day, you want investors that are going to bring value to your business beyond just capital. You know, you don't, you don't want yeah. dumb money on your cap table. You want people that are going to be good partners to you. You want people that are going to give you good advice. You want people that are going to yeah. bring mentorship and resources to the table. You want people that are going to be understanding and are going to support yeah. you when times inevitably get tough. And if you're, not vetting those investors the same way that they're vetting you, um, you're you're going to end up in a bad situation. So um, everyone's yeah. a person, including you, and treat everybody accordingly. I mean, I love this. You said two things, one in the front end and one back here, that we need to talk about failures more. We are people. We're human. We're going to make mistakes. And we can never find success unless we fail, right? There's this, especially in a hyper-connected world, everyone wants to be perfect. But how the fuck do you know what perfect is if you don't fail? And understand that as you build these relationships, as you go through this process of growing a business, creating relationships, going and getting funding, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to fail. And when you're honest with it and you call it out and you put that on the table and you talk about it, that's where people build that trust because you know and have self-awareness. And that is something to tie this whole episode back. I, you brought it up in the beginning and the end, and I absolutely love it. It's something that we were talking pre-show. It just makes me excited because it's, we don't talk about it enough. So, Abby, I appreciate you for being a part of the Bear Necessities podcast and part of Bear Nation. Where can people find you? How can they get in touch with you if they want to connect after the show? Um, email is probably best. Um, it's just my first name, Abby, A-B-B-Y, at BigIdeaVentures.com. Um, I do have a LinkedIn. I'm bad with social media, so uh, my my... My response time to, to, to email will be significantly more, you know, shorter <laughs> and, and, and more likely to get a response than <laughs> it's on LinkedIn, unfortunately. Uh, LinkedIn. Awesome. <laughs> well, I'll put your email in the show notes. I'll also put your LinkedIn. Shameless plug. This is why you should go read my book, The Social Soul. If you're not great with social, this explains why you should be an engager and why you should be active on it. Um, you know, little little Here's eye link there for those that are listening in. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Abby, thank you so much for being a part of the show, being a part of Bear Nation. I really appreciate you. And to Bear Nation, um, stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you. Bear Nation, once again, thank you for listening to the Bear Necessities of Entrepreneurship. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. And until next time, take care. <laughs>